following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, when I was a teenager, one of my favourite bands was a Christian band called Audio Adrenaline. don't know whether anyone's heard of them. Uh, they're pretty rocky, pretty ragey, and they wrote a song called Big House, based on this passage. Based on this passage in John 14, picks up some of the language. Let me read you uh, the verse, uh, first verse of that song. I don't know where you lay your head or where you call your home. I don't know where you eat your meals or where you talk on the phone. I don't know if you've got a cook, a butler, or a maid. I don't know if you've got a yard with a hammock in the shade. And in the chorus, or pre-chorus, come and go with me to my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. And you can hear that he's picking up the language of John 14, this passage, where Jesus says, uh, I'm going to go to my father's house and prepare a place for you. Now, that song reflects the popular understanding of this passage uh, which is that Jesus here is talking about heaven. And he's talking about how he's going to go to his father's house. And we usually imagine that his father's house is heaven. And Jesus is going to go there and prepare this place for us. And we usually, for some reason, translate that as mansions. right? So what Jesus is going to do, we like to think, is he's going to go there and he's already there, and now he's preparing a mansion for us. And so people talk about going to their heavenly mansion and enjoying their heavenly mansion, and we like to imagine how many rooms our heavenly mansion's going to have and how big the yard is going to be and how big the walk-in wardrobe is going to be and whether you've got a cook and a butler and a maid and all of these things because we're going to have this great big home in heaven in the sky. And we get that from this chapter. That's, that's where it comes from. Now, part of the problem, I think, with that understanding of this chapter is that what we tend to do is take all of our consumer desires and project them onto heaven, right? So all the consumer impulse that we have and all the stuff that we really want in this life, we just imagine that when we finally get to heaven, we're going to be able to be consumers on steroids. We're going to be able to go crazy. We, you know, we, we might have to seek first the kingdom of God in this life, but man, when we get to heaven, I'm going to be seeking my own kingdom, I'm going to have a mansion. It's going to be this materialistic dream come true. And I'm not really sure that's Jesus' point. Not really sure that the end goal is to turn us all into spiritual consumers. But I think there's a bigger issue. I'm not sure that Jesus is really talking primarily about heaven in this passage at all. Now, I know that's a little bit controversial and you may disagree and that's fine. Uh, but I'm not sure that's the main point of what Jesus is talking about. It's certainly not the main point of this whole discourse that he goes on to talk about through John 14, 15, and 16. And I'm not sure that that's what he's talking about in these verses as well. So I want to suggest to you another interpretation of this text that I think makes a little bit more sense of it and a, and a lot more sense of the context. And to do that, we're going to have to dig in a little bit, okay? So this is going to be a bit of Bible study. This is going to feel a bit more teachy. Um, but that's okay, because if you hang in there with this, uh, the application will become clear. And I think the application is, is very rich in terms of what Jesus is saying about Father, Son, and Spirit in this passage. Okay, but I want to I do some digging in here, do a little bit of Bible study. So, in verse 2, 
Start there. In verse 2, Jesus says, My Father's house has many rooms. Now, when, when he says, My Father's house, what's he talking about? We imagine he's talking about heaven. That's what pretty much every Christian thinks. Jesus is talking about heaven. But let me ask you this question. Elsewhere in the Gospels, when Jesus uses that phrase, my father's house, can you think of any times when he says that, my father's house, what's he talking about? The temple. You think about earlier in John where he says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. He's not saying don't turn heaven into a marketplace. He's saying don't turn the temple into a marketplace. When Jesus' parents accidentally left him in the temple when he was a boy and they finally caught up with him again, what did he say? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? For Jesus, the temple was his father's house. Because, like most Jews of his day, Jesus believed the temple was the center of God's presence on earth. That's how it had historically been for Israel. The temple was the place where the presence of God resided on earth among his people. That's the primary association, I think, that Jesus is driving at when he says, my father's house. He's getting at the presence of God, symbolized by the temple. That's where God resides. That's where God dwells. So when we hear that phrase, my father's house, our first thought should be presence of God. Not specifically heaven, but the presence of God, symbolized by the temple. Okay, let's press on and we'll just keep rounding out the picture as we go. So Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. The word rooms is the word monet in Greek, not the painter, but uh, the word monet. And interestingly, literally that word means uh, abode or dwelling place or place to rest. It's only used one other time in the whole Bible. That word so only, only appears twice, and the only other time it appears, Monet, is in exactly the same chapter, in John 14. So it's very likely that these two usages of Monet are connected. The other time it's used is down in verse 23. Jesus says, My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. The word home is a translation of the word Monet. So in that context, what does Monet mean? What does the room mean? Well, it's not talking about heaven. It's talking about the life of the believer. Jesus is saying the Father and I are going to come and we're going to make our home with them, with those who love us, with those who are united to Jesus. The home, the, the Monet, the dwelling place there, it, it's not heaven. The Monet is us. The room is our body, our life, that the Holy Spirit fills by His presence, and God comes to make His dwelling with us, to make His home with us. So it's pretty likely, I think, it's a fair assumption that if that's what Jesus is talking about when He uses that word Monet, and the only other time He uses it is at the beginning of this chapter to introduce this discourse, it's pretty likely, I think, that He's talking about the same thing back in verse 2. So I tend to think that what Jesus is getting at here is he's, my father's house has many rooms. He's saying the presence of God is a spacious place in which all of us can dwell. The presence of God is this huge, expansive reality that God desires all of us to dwell within. There is a dwelling place within the presence of God for every one of us. And God desires for his presence to go out beyond the temple 
beyond where it was traditionally located, to go out into the lives and the hearts of people so that God would make his dwelling place with them, with us, and that his presence would fill us, that we would become the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. Okay, not convinced. All right, let's keep going. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? So Jesus says here, I am going there. He's, he's going to his father's house. Now, if, the, if his father's house is the temple, it sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm going to the temple to prepare a place for you. And I think in a sense he is, but the reality is much, much deeper, much more significant. This is what the author of Hebrews picks up on when he says, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, but he entered the true sanctuary, the true temple in heaven in order to present the offering of his own blood before the Father. So heaven, I think, is part of the picture. But the point is that Jesus, after his time on earth, has ascended into heaven, into the fullness of the presence of God, into the true spiritual tabernacle, the true spiritual temple, to be in the presence of God, but not just to stay there on his own, not just so that he would come and get us and take us there. I think the reality unfolds a little bit more. In verse 3, he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So this is typically taken as a reference to the second coming of Jesus, where he says, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. And we assume that what he means by that is he's going to come back to earth and he's going to take us to be with him in heaven. But I want to show you another place in the same chapter where Jesus also talks about himself coming back to us. And he's not talking about the second coming. A little bit further, in verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So there's Jesus talking about coming to us, but he's not talking about his second coming. He's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about going to the Father and then sending us the Spirit. And it's interesting that Jesus talks almost interchangeably about himself coming back to us and the Holy Spirit coming to us because they are interchangeable realities. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus with us. The Holy Spirit represents the Spirit of Christ. So it's natural for Jesus to say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come back to you. And here's how it's going to happen. Through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you an advocate, a helper, a counselor. We'll talk about that in a moment. And I will come back to you. So I think Jesus here is talking about coming back to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. In one sense, Jesus is still in heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us before God. But in another very real sense, Jesus has already come back to us as the Spirit. Now, please don't hear me denying the doctrine of the second coming. All right, please don't get that one uh, warped. I absolutely believe that Jesus will physically, bodily, one day return to earth. There's plenty of times, I think, where he talks about that. There's plenty of times when other New Testament authors talk about that. I just don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think this coming back of Jesus has already happened. 
I think it happened at Pentecost, and it's been happening ever since. When a person comes into relationship with Jesus, he comes back to them. And he says, I will come back to you, and I will take you to be with me. And you say, surely that sounds like he's coming back here. He's going to take us from here to heaven. But you know what that phrase literally says? I will receive you to myself. That's relational language. That's marriage language. I will receive you to myself. Back in the first chapter of John, John says, for all those who receive him, to those who call on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive someone to yourself is not about taking them to another place. It's about entering into relationship with them. And that's what Jesus has done. He's come back to us in the form of the Holy Spirit to receive us to himself. When we receive Christ, he receives us, enters into this union with us, fills us with his presence by the Holy Spirit. So, putting all that together, here's what I would suggest Jesus is saying. My Father's house, the presence of God, symbolized by the temple, the presence of God has room enough for all of us, room enough for every single one of us. God's desire is that we would dwell within his presence. In order to make that happen, Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, has now ascended back to heaven into the fullness of the presence of God, carrying the sacrifice of his own blood. He's presented it before the Father. God has found that to be an acceptable sacrifice. And therefore, because of that, Jesus has been able to come back to us in the form of the Holy Spirit, now to fill us, to empower us, to receive us to himself and to be present with us. I think this is about the presence of God with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. I know that might be a bit of a different interpretation to what you've heard before. I know it's not quite the heavenly mansions idea, but I tend to think that what Jesus is talking about here is not so much about heaven as it is about earth, about what is happening here through the presence of the Holy Spirit with us and within us. And I tend to think that what Jesus is talking about is not so much future, but present. The here and now of God journeying with his people and being present with them in the way that Christ has come back to us through the Spirit and received us to himself. I think that makes good sense of the very first thing that Jesus says in this chapter. In verse 1, he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he goes on to talk about his father's house and how he's going to come back to them. And the reason I think Jesus says to his disciples and says to us, do not let your hearts be troubled, is not because we're going to get a heavenly mansion in the sky one day, but it's because Jesus is present with us now by his Holy Spirit. The reason that you and I don't, don't need to let our hearts be troubled it's not just because of the future, great though the hope of heaven is, it's because of the present reality and assurance that the Holy Spirit is here, that he is with us, that he is filling us with his presence, surrounding us with his love, and anchoring us in the grace of Jesus. That's why we don't need to let our hearts be troubled, because no matter what life brings us, Jesus has come back to us and is journeying with us and his presence with us is transformative. It transforms our life, and especially it transforms our experience of suffering when our hearts are troubled. When we were in Jerusalem a little while ago, uh, there was an afternoon where, where me and Joe Black and our tour guide Mark went across the road to another hotel just up the road from where we were staying. It's called the American Colony Hotel. And we were sitting there in this beautiful courtyard 
it's a pretty fancy hotel. That's why we weren't staying there. It's a really nice place. And we were just sort of enjoying the surroundings, drinking some really expensive coffee. And Mark just started telling us the story of this place, the American Colony Hotel. It was started by a guy called Horatio Spafford. He was an American uh, living in, in the mid-19th century uh, in Chicago. He was a, a successful partner in a law firm, very successful businessman. And in about 1870, I think, tragedy just started to strike his life. His, his uh, only son, four-year-old son, got hit with scarlet fever and passed away. He had a whole lot of real estate investments north of Chicago. That all got wiped out in the Great Chicago Fire. And so to try and recoup from all that, Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna and their four daughters decided that they'd go on a holiday to Europe. And he sent them on ahead of him because he was tied up with business and he thought he was going to have to come later. They made the voyage across the, the Atlantic and got shipwrecked on the way. And his four daughters died. His wife survived and telegrammed him from London. A simple telegram said, saved alone. So Horatio traveled to, to be with his wife. And on that voyage that he took across the Atlantic, uh, in the middle of the journey, that is where he penned that famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. He was then reunited with his wife. They went on, had more children. And eventually he got to Jerusalem. And he started this place, which is now the American Colony Hotel. He started it as a Christian community. And it was involved in, in all kinds of community work in East Jerusalem. Running orphanages, running soup kitchens, all this philanthropic work among the poor and the marginalized in East Jerusalem. And as we left the hotel, they have on the wall in the lobby of the hotel, the original manuscript that he wrote of that hymn. And the words that he penned on the boat as he traveled across the Atlantic. And, and you read them there. It's just a powerful place to stand and relive the story and the story of God's faithfulness and presence with him. And many of you know the hymn, It is well with my soul. That first verse, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he could say that because he had a deep assurance of the presence of Christ with him, faithfulness of God with him, presence of the Holy Spirit with him in spite of what he was going through. It's the reality of the presence of God's Holy Spirit. It sustains us and anchors us, especially in troubled times. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have troubles. It didn't mean for Horatio that he wasn't going to, that God was going to spare him. He suffered incredibly in his life. He even after the loss of his daughters, he continued to experience tragedy in his life. God never promises us that we're going to be spared from trouble. In fact, Jesus says the opposite. When he gets to the end of the sermon, at the end of chapter 16 verse 33, you know what he says? In this life you will have troubles. That's a promise of Scripture. Those of you that are really into, you know, claiming the promises of Scripture, try claiming that one, right? Yes, in this life you will have troubles. Amen. And claim it in faith. You know, that's, a, that's about as emphatic a promise as you get from the lips of Jesus. In this life you will have troubles. But what does he say next? But take heart, because I've overcome the world. There's a difference between having troubles and having a troubled heart. At the, at the end of the sermon, Jesus says, you're going to have troubles. But at the beginning of the sermon, he says, let not your heart be troubled. No matter how troubled our life gets, no matter how troubled it is around you at the moment, in your family, at your workplace, socially, whatever it is, no matter how troubled it is within you, 
in your mind, in your heart, in your inner experience. We don't need to let our hearts be troubled because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. And one of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is to encourage our hearts. That's why Jesus says later on in the same chapter, he says, I'm going to ask the Father, he's going to send to you another advocate. The word is parakletos. It literally means one who comes alongside to help, one who is summoned alongside to help us. And, and different translations of the Bible translate that word different ways. Some translate it advocate, some translate it helper, some translate it counselor. I think the best translation is encourager. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to encourage your heart. Holy Spirit does a lot of things. His work is cosmic. He's at work renewing the whole creation. But when it comes right down to the individual level, one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives is encourage our heart. That's one of the reasons God sent him to earth to encourage your heart. Isn't that great? Doesn't that speak to you of your value in God's eyes that God would give you that gift? That God would give you the advocate, the encourager to just work away on your heart, work away, chip away on your discouragement, chip away on your disillusionment, chip away on the feeling of hopelessness that you've got, chip away on the feeling of despair that you've got, and just breathe encouragement into your life if you're open to receiving it. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's doing that right now if you're open enough to receive it. He's doing that right now. He's, he's encouraging hearts in this room right now. He's wanting to. He's wanting to encourage your heart. Maybe you've got a troubled heart this morning. Maybe there's something going on for you in a relationship, at work, maybe in your finances, maybe with your health, maybe someone close to you is really struggling, really battling, and you feel it, and your heart is troubled. Maybe it's a storm inside of you. I know for me, one of the ways that that, that troubled heart kind of expresses itself is through anxiety and through worry, just worrying about stuff. You know, in the last week or so, I've, I've woken up twice at 4 a.m. just worrying about stuff. You know, anybody else do this? Just worrying. And in the light of day, when you actually get up at a decent hour, you realize, well, you know, that's not that bad. But at 4 a.m., it's a big deal. Everything seems huge. The world seems again. Your problems seem massive. I worry. It's my default response. It's so annoying. Just worry about stuff. So I need to hear this today. I'm really preaching to myself today that I need to hear Jesus' words to me when he says, do not let your heart be troubled because Christ has come back to me and he's present with me through his Holy Spirit. Some of you need to hear this afresh this morning. Don't let your heart be troubled because Christ is with you. He's with you. And his desire is to breathe hope into your life, to breathe some fresh hope if you're open to it so you can see some new possibilities. And, and, and God wants to be the lifter of your head, just to lift your head up so you can look up and not, and not down, just to look up and sit, look up into the face of Jesus and see him and to see the hope and see the compassion in his eyes and see how much he loves you and see how much he's for you and see how much he's walking with you. The Holy Spirit desires to come alongside you and to give you rest, to lead your soul into rest. Some of you have got such an unsettled heart. It's just restless. And the Holy Spirit desires to lead your heart into those green pastures of God's grace, just to, to lead you to lie down in the green pastures. For some of you, the Holy Spirit wants to give you strength to enable you to rise up with wings as eagles, to walk, not get tired, to run, not get weary. New strength, fresh strength to face whatever you're going through. And some of you have a really troubled heart because of things going on on the inside. 
the troubles of your mind and your heart. Some of you are struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, struggling with mental and emotional illness. And the troubles aren't going away. Just because you know God's present with you doesn't suddenly mean the feelings are better. And you just need to know that regardless of how you're feeling on the inside and regardless of what's happening outside, Christ is with you. It's the promise of Scripture. God doesn't solve all of your problems. He doesn't. I wish he would, but he doesn't promise to do that. He promises us that we'll have troubles. And it's okay to pray to God to alleviate our problems. It's great, and we should pray for healing, and we should pray for intervention, and we should pray that God would deal with the, the, the factors in our life that are causing us difficulty. But in the midst of our problems, God's primary response to us, God's primary gift is not to solve our problems. The primary thing God gives us is himself. The primary gift of the Father is to give us the Holy Spirit to journey with us. The greatest gift that God gives you in your troubles is the gift of his presence. Isn't that the great promise of Psalm 23? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What's the next line? You are with me. Not you take me out of the valley, not you take me onto the next mountaintop, but simply you are with me. And that's why I can make it through the valley. And that's how I can stand firm even though I'm in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death because you are with me, God. The Spirit is with me. And so let me just ask you, how aware are you right now that the Holy Spirit is with you? I didn't say, how aware are you that, or how much do you feel that the Holy Spirit is with you? You may or may not feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so often we want to chase after feelings and make this all about emotions. But I think the journey of a disciple is a journey toward becoming more and more aware of the presence of the Spirit, regardless of how we feel, regardless of whether we emotionally feel connected to God in that moment or not. But regardless of what your feelings are telling you, how aware, how conscious are you of the presence of the Holy Spirit with you? How conscious are you of the Spirit's work of encouragement, the Holy Spirit's quiet patient work encouraging your heart how open are you to it how cognizant are you of what the holy spirit is trying to do in your heart and how much are you willing to open your heart and receive that encouragement and listen to that voice and enjoy the presence of god what i'd like to do as we finish this morning is just pray a a simple prayer and i want to encourage you as i pray this prayer just to to be still and to take this time and to picture and to, to really center yourself on the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit. However you picture the Holy Spirit, picture Him with you. Picture Him within you. Picture Him surrounding you. Psalms say, you surround me, God, with your presence as with a shield. Picture Him surrounding you now. However you picture Jesus, picture Him with you alongside you as your elder brother, walking the road with you. However you picture God the Father, picture Him with you. Picture God's presence flowing out from the temple, flowing out like a river from the temple. That's not its home anymore. The presence of God is is flooded out into our heart. That's why the curtain was torn in two, not just so we could get into the Holy of Holies, but so that the presence of God would flood out into our life to make our hearts the dwelling place of God 
by his spirit. So however you picture the Father, picture him with you. Picture him bathing you in his presence and making your own body his home. That's how close he is to you. This is the wonderful reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. It's what generations of people in Scripture looked for and dreamed for and hoped for, that God would be fully present with his people. They only had it in the form of the temple or the form of the tabernacle. They couldn't believe that God would ever send his spirit, his presence to fill the hearts of people, but now he has. And that's the reality we have. That's the reality we can take hold of, especially in times when our hearts are troubled. So let's be still and let's center ourselves on the presence of the spirit with us. And let me read this prayer. Father God, why is it that I think I must get somewhere or assume some position or be gathered together or separated apart in the quiet of my study in order to pray? Why is it that I feel I have to go somewhere or do some particular act to find you, to reach you, to talk with you? Your presence is here, in the city, on the busy bus, in the factory, in the cockpit of the aeroplane, in the hospital, the patient's rooms, the intensive care unit, in the waiting room, at home, at dinner, in the bedroom, in the family room, at my workbench, in the car, in the parking lot, at the stoplight. Lord, reveal your presence to me everywhere. And help me become aware of your presence each moment of the day. May your presence fill the non-answers, the empty glances, and the lonely times of my life. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.